I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Because genetic mutations are well known to cause breast cancer, genetic screening has both highlighted high-risk groups and added to the medical understanding of inherited risk factors across different populations. But how can testing data encourage prevention and agency without amplifying personal fear? What can research reveal about genetic markers of risk and predisposition? Or, put differently, how can understanding one's inherited risk improve approaches to precision prevention? Dr. Efrat Levy-Lahad is on the forefront of this research, focusing on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations among various populations. She is a professor of internal medicine and medical genetics at Hebrew University and director of the Medical Genetics Institute at Sha'ar Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. Dr. Levi-Lahad is also active in bioethical aspects of genetic research and is currently co-chair of the Israel National Bioethics Council. Before my conversation with Dr. Levi-Lahad, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Efrat Levi-Lahad. Dr. Levi-Lahad, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the specifics and uh, the various studies that you've released, particularly one last year, I've read a line of yours that I really think sets the stage for this conversation. Actually, two lines. One, I read where you said, knowing your inherited risk is about precision prevention. You've also said, you meant it in the context of breast cancer and breast cancer prevention, knowledge is power. What did you mean by those two statements? So the first statement about precision prevention um, is really a, a spin-off, I would say, or a takeoff from precision medicine. Uh, we hear a lot about precision medicine, and mostly in the realm of oncology in general and breast cancer in particular, where you're looking for a therapy that's tailored to the patient and to the patient's tumor. And I think, and, and that's usually done using genetic and genomic tools by looking at the genetics and genomics of the tumor what's really powerful about genetics, and that's where the knowledge is power, is if you know about the, the genetic risk before you ever get cancer, what you can really do is precision prevention. So a prevention that's tailored to the fact that you're at high risk because of a genetic inherited mutation. And by knowledge is power, what I mean is that there are now very effective means of prevention. So if you have a woman who's at very high risk of getting breast cancer, there are things she can do to substantially reduce her risk. But if she only finds out about it after she has cancer, um, it's not too late, but it's one cancer too late. And so that's what these two statements are about. Yeah. And in terms of that precision, really customizing some of that prevention per the individual. I know that uh, various types of prevention can be that specific down to the actual person. And yes, in terms of some of that uh, that data on what that prevention can do or what that knowledge can do in terms of creating outcomes, 
Um, I know that uh, some of that was part of what you reported in your study last year. But maybe we could start with genetic testing. How do people react when you talk with them about the importance of genetic testing? Who, who should be thinking about doing it? Is, you know, everyone um, or select groups or individuals? How do you kind of give broad guidance around the thinking about genetic testing? You know, I think it's a, it's a moving target. When genetics uh, of cancer started out in the realm of breast cancer, we we're really talking about the mid-90s when BRCA1 and BRCA2 were identified, people were thinking about those tests mostly in the context of women who have both can have had both can breast cancer or ovarian cancer themselves and had a strong history of these cancers, or people with a very strong family history. Um, over the years, what we've seen happening is that it's really moved into the realm of the patients. So once a person has cancer, genetic or genomic testing of the person and of the tumor becomes part of the uh, part of their care and management. But where I'm really at in terms of the precision prevention is really trying to get people who are at high genetic risk to be tested before they ever have cancer. Now, that is also, uh, I would say, um, complex. So there are populations where we know that there are very high rates of mutations. So the a population I've worked on a lot um, is the Ashkenazi Jewish mutation. These are Jews of European ancestry. And we know that among uh, Ashkenazi Jews, about one in 40 is a carrier of a mutation either in BRCA1 or in BRCA2. And we've also shown through all of this work has been supported by BCRF that approximately half of carriers don't have any significant family history for various reasons I can explain later. But the bottom line is that if you only went by family history, you would identify only about half of carriers, even though they're at mm. high risk. So there are populations like the Ashkenazi Jewish populations where I think our studies have shown that it actually makes sense to test everybody. I don't think we're quite there yet for populations where the um, background risk is lower, but I would hazard a guess that, um, you know, five years from now, um, I think this is going to become uh, universal. One of the reasons it's, it might become universal also has nothing necessarily to do with breast cancer. It's just that as we understand more and more about our genomes and genetics, I think it's going to become part of routine medical care in general is to know what diseases uh, are you at risk for and what you can do about preventing them. Yes, I, I hope to get to ask you just a little bit about biogenetic ethics as well, which I know is a, an area of interest of yours. And yes, I am curious, uh, the the ubiquity of genetic testing today surely is changing some of those dynamics, not only the ethical dynamics, but also in the knowledge. Right now, I would believe very initial knowledge that lay people, you know, like myself might be gaining around genetic testing. But as we you know, as it becomes more part of the dialogue and the conversation, it would make sense to me as an outsider why your view of five years as opposed to 10 might be possible. How do you help individuals balance the fear of results versus that power of knowledge and the power of knowing um, genetic testing results early? I think that's uh, the balance is obviously uh, difficult sometimes, but the balance I usually talk to my patients about is what 
in a way, how you would weigh the so-called bad outcomes and mm-hmm. what weight would you give, would you give to them? So one bad outcome is you're going to know that you have a mutation and that is definitely cause, going to cause some anxiety. And there um, is quite a bit of data that once a woman finds out she's a carrier, there's an, there's a, there's an uptick in, in anxiety that actually usually goes down over time. The other bad outcome is finding a cancer that um, late that you could may have prevented. I'll give the example of ovarian cancer, which is very easily preventable mm. because you did not want to know that you are at risk. And if you look at these two outcomes and you weigh them, you have to decide what works better for you. One of the big issues we have is that often uh, men and women who find out there are carriers will tell only very few of their relatives. So maybe a brother and a sister, mm. sometimes not their mother, not their children, and um, and certainly uh, and many times not their cousins, for example. And I've had patients who are carriers tell me, once I told them, listen, you need to call your, your cousin Ruth and tell her that there's a mutation in the family. I said, you don't have to say you're a carrier, but somebody, we can do it or you can do it, needs to tell her. And she says, well, what do you expect me to do? Call her on Jewish New Year's or Passover <laughs> and say, uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, that we have this uh, mutation in the family. So, I, and I, I, and when I started out, um, you know, over 20 years ago doing this, I would sympathize with that, you know, with that um, conflict. But over the years, because, you know, I, I practice Israel as a small place and I often see those cousins in the end in my clinic I said, you know, if next time you call her for Jewish New Year's and she tells you that she has a cancer that you could have prevented, are you going to, how are you going to feel about that? And once you sort of put it in that light, people realize how important it is. So I think, you know, anytime it's like going for a mammogram, when you go for a mammogram, you're, you're afraid to go for the mammogram because you don't want them to find anything and you're afraid. But on the other hand, what will you do? Not get a mammogram? You know, I think it's a battle between your sort of rational self and your, and your fears, and that's something we confront all the time. And maybe some of the the data help as well. Um, you, you published a study last year in uh, JAMA Oncology. Tell me about the differences in life expectancy and the need for chemotherapy for women who found out they were genetic carriers. So um, what we did in the JAMA Oncology paper was really ask ourselves that that knowledge is power question, meaning what happens if you know that you're a carrier before you developed breast cancer, and then you have the opportunity to take whatever preventive measures you want to take, uh, versus if you find out you're a carrier only once you've developed breast cancer. And we even narrowed it down uh, to women who knew they were carriers, but chose not to have a risk reduction surgery. So as I'm sure many of you know, that one of the uh, possibilities for prevention of breast cancer for women who are carriers is to have a double mastectomy. And this is something that's, that seems to be very, have great variability worldwide. And in Israel, only a minority, maybe about 15%, one five of carriers um, choose to have bilateral mastectomy. So we wondered whether if they just have surveillance, what is that going to look like compared to women who find out their carriers only after they were diagnosed with breast cancer. And we found that overall mortality was significantly lower in those who had just surveillance. Even with just surveillance, so you don't even have to do the bilateral. 
So there was 94% uh, survival over five years compared to 78% survival. That means 22% of deaths for women who found out they were carriers only after they had breast cancer. And we uh, the, the early detection in carriers who knew they were carriers and were being followed led to the fact that if they did develop cancer, it was very er it was very early stage. And so most of them, uh, 55%, did not need any chemotherapy compared to 80% who needed chemotherapy in the group that found out they were uh, carriers only after uh, they were diagnosed with cancer. So even women who elect not to have double mastectomy really gain by knowing that they're carriers ahead of time. And what has this done in Israel in terms of genetic testing? And, and maybe you can talk about uh, what is known as the Israeli health basket and the, the type of testing that's available just as, as part of the, I, I don't know if it's universal care there, but the, the healthcare system there. I would say over the years, I've asked myself the question of whether we should really be testing all Ashkenazi Jews. And we sort of took this step by step. The original study that we did, um, which was published in 2014, was we actually tried to find carriers who were identified at random, not because they had cancer or because they had a family history of cancer. And the way we did that was by testing over 8,000 Ashkenazi men. So basically, these were unaffected men. That Some of them, about 10% did have a family history of cancer, which is what you would expect in a general population. But they themselves were uh, were healthy. We found the expected rate of carriers, which was about two and a half percent. And then um, we we looked at the women in the families of these carriers, and we found out that they were still at very high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. Because at least theoretically, you could think that maybe there are carriers out there who are actually at low risk, but they have other protective factors that we still haven't identified. But we found that even if you just test everybody, those who are carriers are still going to be at very high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, once we found that out, we started doing studies to show if it's feasible from, I would say, a psychosocial uh, view, uh, whether people will actually, women will actually want to get tested, how we can provide such testing because you really need a different kind of model. If you're testing people who come in because they have a personal or a family history of cancer, you're doing a 45-minute session of genetic counseling, you're explaining all mm. the pros and cons, the types of tests they can do, what the results are going to be. That's something that's not really feasible on a large scale. And there's a question actually of whether it's necessary uh, or not. So we've done studies to show that in the context of a general screen, you can really um, shorten the pretest process even to just written information without compromising uh, psychological outcomes uh, in the end. And and once we did that, um, we approached um, what's called the Israeli Health Basket Committee. So in Israel, we have uh, universal uh, health insurance. It's uh, provided through four large HMOs. But the government decides what is the minimal list of services. That's called the health basket. What's the minimal list of services that these HMOs must provide to every Israeli? And they have a committee that sits every year to decide on new technologies, new drugs that are part of this mandatory list of services. And um, we, we, the first time we uh, 
we applied was in uh, 2018. It was rejected in 2018, rejected in 2019. And in January of 2020, mm. it was approved for the Israeli health basket for every Ashkenazi woman to be tested for the common mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2. As we all know, there was some uh, there were some other health issues in 2020, yes, namely yes. Corona. So really, it's just getting off the ground now in the middle of 2021. And I hope that in a year or two, we'll have um, some more information on on how that's actually playing out. It's not considered a national screening program. There's no, um, I would say, active encouragement yet of women to come and be tested, but all Ashkenazi women are offered this test. I, I will say, you know, what makes this population different is one one aspect that I've already mentioned is that um, that very high background rate, one in 40 that has a mutation, uh, the second, um, the second difference is that we're really, we're not doing full testing of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. We're not testing other genes. We are really testing just specific mutations that are known to cause mm. uh, high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And if you look at the genetic tests that are normally done, uh, you're looking at tests that sequence the entire sequence of BRCA1 or BRCA2 or do an entire gene panel. And there are all kinds of issues there about the different types of mutations and the different types of variation that may actually not be disease causing. So doing a a more expansive genetic test also um, creates new conundrums in terms of understanding what the variants do. And Ashkenazi Jews, we're really keeping it simple. We're just testing for those uh, specific mutations. So, but still, I think it's extremely valuable because it's really a paradigm for the way forward, because ultimately we're going to know a lot more about variants and we're going to know which ones are disease causing and which are not. And this will give us a lot of information about how we can actually take the genetics and bring it you know, to the population level. It's occurring to me as you're talking, first of all, what an advancement, but additionally, what incredible data you're going to get, just an incredible amount of information that surely will be helpful in all sorts of new ways. Speaking of which, my understanding of some of your current work involves, maybe not exclusively, but two related projects, the Israel Breast Cancer Study and the Middle East Breast Cancer Study, which you're doing with two other BCRF colleagues. Tell me about each of those. The Israel Breast Cancer Study started out with Ashkenazi Jews, because that's what was possible to test when we started out. And we've now segged into non-Ashkenazi Jews. And the idea there is actually to look at this population, which is really understudied. A lot of the information we have in genetics is about Europeans and and uh, and whites and Ashkenazi Jews, which are a very, I would say, um, well-studied group in general in genetics. But we know that if we want to really understand the genetic underpinnings of disease, we really have to look for much more diverse sources of genetic information. So if you look at, I would say, almost any field in in genetics and genomics today, there is a big push to study populations that haven't been studied yet because they harbor a lot of genetic variation on which we don't have sufficient information and knowledge. So I would say in that sense, both the Israel Breast Cancer Study and its and the sister project, the Middle East Breast Cancer Study, are doing that. The Middle East Breast Cancer Study is in collaboration with Dr. Muin Kanan from Bethlehem University. 
in the Palestinian Authority and with Dr. Mary Claire King, the mother god of all breast cancer genetics from uh, the University of, uh, of Washington. Yes. And we're uh, really looking at um, Palestinian women with, uh, with breast cancer, again, with the aim of, of capturing that genetic diversity. Another in, uh, an interesting thing is that in, in that process, we, um, in the Middle East, both, both in, um, in Jewish families and in Palestinian families, we often have relatively large families that are in a small geographical area that we can reach. And so we have uh, many families that um, are so-called unsolved families in the sense that there are families with multiple cases of breast cancer, but the genetic cause is not yet known. So part of our efforts are trying to figure out what is the genetic cause in these families. And along the way, it's actually, it always, um, I know it, and it still amazes me every time, is how you can study a specific or a smaller population and you can still gain insights into questions that are much larger, much larger and that affect women world, worldwide. So I'll, I'll just give an example from the Palestinian uh, breast cancer study. So we found Please. out we found out that about uh, 1% of all breast cancer families in the Palestinian population have a mutation in a different gene. It's called TP53. And generally, mutations in this gene cause a very severe uh, cancer, cancer predisposition syndrome that's called Lee-Fraumini syndrome, and that is actually associated with, uh, with severe tumors in children, often hematological sarcomas. And it, when we looked at these uh, families in the Palestinian population that have a bona fide mutation in TP53, we really aren't seeing any uh, childhood cancers, but we're seeing uh, breast cancers. What should we be doing with Palestinian women with these mutations? Do they really need the onerous follow-up and surveillance that leave from many children have in adults? And we're talking about having a total body MRI every year and, and, and other tests. And it turns out to be a much more general question today, because when geneticists started uh, performing um, gene panel testing, so when you're doing a gene panel testing, you're not just testing for BRCA1 or BRCA2, you're testing for often dozens of different genes that are associated with cancer, and certainly TP53 is associated with young onset breast cancer. But now you have these women who are 50, 60, 70 with breast cancer, no family history, and they turn out to have TP53 mutations. So there's actually now a whole need for information on what subset of TP53 mutations actually behave differently, mm. do not cause Lee-Fraumini syndrome. And we've started doing that just in a specific population, but then it, you can see how it impacts a much more general question in genetic testing today. It's the, the nature of science. Questions uh, generate new answers, which in turn so frequently generate new questions, uh, which is <laughs> what would keep uh, folks like you going and going and going. Um, and it, it, do I have this right? Is it the, the, the work that you're doing, the largest cohort of Arab women in the world to undergo such testing? Really, the credit, the credit for that goes to uh, Moeen Kanan's team at the, in the Palestinian Authority. And really, this is the largest um, Arab cohort. And it's been done under very often difficult, uh, uh, difficult circumstances, both geographically, the, you know, the, the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank, Gaza, it's uh, movement is often uh, is often difficult. Also, cultural difficulties, uh, genetic testing really wasn't available 
before the Middle East breast cancer study started, there was a lot of uh, um, suspicion and worry about genetic testing uh, in adults in the Palestinian population. So I think uh, Dr. Kanan and his team have really uh, made a huge uh, difference there. And the BCRF, by supporting this study, has actually created a, a, a service that wasn't there at all to begin with. And that's mm. that's been one of the really gratifying aspects of this project. I would assume so. Now, you also are active in bioethical aspects of genetic research. We touched on it earlier. Um, and I realized that you could do an entire lecture series on this topic. But I'm curious what you might see as the primary bioethical aspects today. We, we have a ubiquity of home gene testing, as we discussed. We have massive advances in gene editing. We have privacy and knowledge gaps. What areas around this gain your greatest focus? I'm going to actually start with a privacy end. I think there are some differences between genetic privacies and other types of medical privacies, but I don't think they're as I don't think there the differences are as big as originally imagined. Personally, I think that the, the emphasis should be on best efforts to keep information private. And I would say this about a lot of medical information and not and also non-medical information. But I think actually a lot of the weight should actually be moved to the downstream, meaning to abuse of of uh, or or you know or trying to breach that privacy i think a lot of the effort is made in in the safeguards and consent and whatever and i think a lot more effort should be should be put into enforcement of any breaches of of privacy i think that's i think mm. that's one way to solve this uh um to solve this issue and and i think the the reason for the conflict is because it's clear that for biomedical research to fulfill its promise we need a lot of data from individual people. So individuals have to be willing to give their information for this greater good. And if that doesn't happen, none of us are going to reap the maximal benefits. But it also has to be safeguarded. If I think about the other aspect, I think gene editing is really a big game changer in that respect. And uh, I had the privilege of being a member of a National Academy of Sciences committee on uh, on gene editing a couple of years ago and the questions especially around changing the our inherited genetics what's called germline gene editing i think those are going to be very big questions the situation right now is that i would say on the technical level it's not yet safe enough for clinical use so that gives us time and space to think about what will happen when it actually does become technically safe, because I assume that it will become technically safe. Those are going to be very big questions. One thing I, 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 I think in the committee we grappled with a lot, and in general I think about, is how do you involve the public in this discussion? And it's not simple. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of, I would say, scientific advances that have big social impacts and big political impacts is you don't want only scientists making these decisions or thinking about these problems. But it's not easy to, to engage the general public in such questions. And I think things like this podcast or, you know, other discussions are, uh, are really important if we want to get to endpoints that are really maximally beneficial to all of humans. 
But I think input from, from the public is extremely important because the concerns that I might see are going to be very different from a concern, concerns that an, another person is going to have. And, and even in the committee, which was all people who understand gene editing, there were many uh, different viewpoints. That sort of crosstalk is extremely important. Quickly, as, as uh, we start to close the conversation, I'm curious about you. How did you get into this uh, growing up for you? Was it always science? How did you end up in this? I was always interested in, uh, in science. In high school, I became really interested in genetics because I had an amazing uh, biology teacher. Her name it was Hannah Loyer. Mm-hmm. And I just, she was just really, really smart. And it, and uh, a lot of my high school classes were really boring. And, and, <laughs> and biology in general and genetics in particular were, uh, were really, um, interesting. So that was one thing. The other thing I think of, of all the fields of, uh, of medicine, genetics is relatively has a stronger mathematical component. And I'm a daughter of a mathematician. I could never be a mathematician, but I think that also, had some uh, some influence. Being the daughter of a mathematician might be harder than actually being a mathematician, but <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. And the other thing is actually, um, I would say generational. I'm a woman, and I was really worried about ultimately not having a, a job or a career that could uh, fulfill what I thought was my potential. Hmm. And... Um, my mother, who is in her late 80s, is from a different generation, and she actually started out in science. And for various reasons, she ended up doing other things. And, and among that, it's because I think if you do, um, you know, a, a straight science career at the time was more difficult. And my thinking about this was I like people. And if I go into medicine, I can still do science. But if the science part doesn't work out, I will still have a profession that I can work in. I did not honestly see myself as not having a profession. I would say in medical school, I was still interested in uh, in genetics. I think Israel is a genetics laboratory. We have so many different populations with so many different um, diseases and conditions. And when I went to do my fellowship at the University of Washington, what I was really looking towards was to learn basically research tools that would help me understand disease genetics and bring those tools back to Israel. And I originally did my residency in internal medicine, and I was actually, uh, my focus was actually adult disease. And um, my fellowship actually was more on Alzheimer's disease, and I discovered an Alzheimer's disease gene. But I think that that's one of the reasons I also went into cancer genetics is even though at the time uh, genetics was largely a pediatric endeavor, I was an internist and I was interested in adult medicine. And these are, you know, sort of the major um, adult diseases. Like anything else in life, there are many uh, instances of chance along the way. And one of them was that towards uh, the end of my fellowship, uh, Dr. Mary Claire King of breast cancer genetics fame uh, moved from Berkeley, California to the University of Washington. Here was this world-famous researcher in breast cancer genetics, and I started speaking to her, and the rest is uh, 
The rest is history. I would imagine conversations that we, for, for those who have the privilege to have those conversations, that's the way it goes with her. And lastly, I know you, you've mentioned it a, a, a couple of times, but what role would you say BCRF has played in your research? You know, uh, BCRF has us uh, every year uh, when we reapply, we have to write a, a couple of sentences about if not for BCRF. <laughs> I can safely say that if not for BCRF, none of my breast cancer research would have happened. Hmm. In, um, in Israel, the um, I would say the opportunities for translational research funding are very slim. And that is really what BCRF uh, has, has provided, I think, in general, but also specifically, uh, specifically for me. All the studies I have described have all been funded by the BCRF. Hmm. And would not have been, uh, and, and would not have been, uh, otherwise, uh, possible just given the types of resources that are available in Israel, certainly in Palestine. So it's all BCRF. That's all I can say. And it's an amazing organization. Well, uh, and it, and it's just a little bit, uh, the researchers like you as well. Dr. Levy Lahad. It's all nature and nurture, you know? So. It's all nature and nurture. It sure is. BCRF is all nurture. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, then, then great for you to bring, uh, I'm sure, nurture as well, but, uh, you know, bring a good helping of nature along with it. Um, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Efrat Levi-Lahad. My thanks to Dr. Levi-Lahad for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.